thank you, Brother Justin, for leading that song. Fit very well with our Sunday school discussion and also a Christian experience. Also appreciate the song that we sang during the offering about the love that we experienced from Jesus, and I had to think. It's been impressed to me recently how that that in Scripture you discover that we are not able to to love like we should. It it takes God at work in us. Actually, Scripture says that you're not going to love like you're supposed to. It's supposed to, but God will teach you how to love. You love God, and He'll teach you how to love. And I realize that. I receive love from others that God has given them. And that's a blessing to reflect on. And I, my prayer is that, that others experience the love of God through my life because I let him do it. It goes without saying that Brother Ellis isn't here to bring the message. Uh, Evan inferred that relating to the fact that they're traveling today. Uh, when Ellis realized that their plans conflicted, he asked if I would trade him, so Lord willing, he'll be bringing the message next Sunday. There is an item that I want to bring before the congregation this morning while I'm here. We received a request from Brother Brandon Hartman that he would like to be a member here at Pike, and we are thankful for his interest and his willingness to be part of us. And I have received a letter from his congregation back home. And so we'd like to um, bring him in as a member soon, but we kind of have a custom of making it official that there is a request and that we are processing it with the idea that you have opportunity to speak to the situation of bringing him in. Uh, we recommend him to you based on several things, our observation of his life, the recommendation from his home congregation, and his testimony. But uh, we'll give you a little time to uh, think about it, and we'll be planning to receive him in the near future based on our anticipation of everything being like we think it is. <clears throat> We had the unusual experience this, this winter of missing three services in a row due to weather. And in that process, of course, we missed a few Sunday school lessons. And I thought about that, and I was thinking about bringing the message that perhaps we ought to go back and look at some of those lessons uh, just to uh, pick up on what we might have missed out on. And there were three options. And I did choose, actually, I, I attempted to address this one last Sunday at McGackiesville, and I found that it's a pretty comprehensive subject. But I decided to go ahead and, and uh, touch on it here today, and this at Pike. And so, planning to relate to the subject of God's order of headship. Now, when we think of this, our minds usually go to one of the doctrines that we we are as a as a Christian group. We tend to stand out a little bit because we 
believe that all of this writing is for us and our time and our application. A lot of today's Christianity negates some of this teaching to and relegates it to uh, back then when Paul was talking to the Corinthian church. And yet it's interesting that, that he says, I give this as an ordinance. And in this same chapter, he touches on this, actually doesn't touch on, he actually uh, gives instruction about how to do communion. And the church, our present day churches don't relegate that to the past, but they believe that's important and it's uh, for our time. And so I want us to be reminded again, I don't believe you, this is anything that I'll say this morning is new, but just a reminder and possibly for the young person, people that haven't heard so much on the subject to help understand why we are where we are, how we need to look at this. <clears throat> but there are some basic principles that we believe uh, are practical and actually we are responsible for today as it relates to headship bailing on, on our sisters. But I don't want that to be the just the focus of this message because it wasn't really the, just the focus of that Sunday school lesson. The focus is God's order in headship. This, we believe, is God ordained. God gave Apostle Paul the, the, the responsibility to establish these principles, make them um, obvious to us through his word, and so we, we look at the whole picture of how this all ties together. And of course, if you recall, the uh, focus of our court is restoring order in the church. And this is one of the aspects of restoring, or maybe another way you would say reminding us of the proper roles of, of headship that relate to God's orderly operation in the church. I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Actually, in our quarterly, it, it uh, didn't continue through verse six, uh, 16. It, it ended with verse 12. And then they picked up in the quarterly, chapter 14, as it relates to some other aspects of order in the, in, in the church. And I'll probably touch on that toward the end. But I'd like for us to notice this passage, and I'm not going to really delve into it at this point. I want to read it, and then I have some other passages that I want to read. And I believe lay down some specific principles as to how we relate to this headship order and some of the, some of the reasoning for why it's important. And so I'd like to begin with reading uh, 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. But I would have you, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying with his head covered dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered 
dishonoreth her head, for that is even one as if she were shaven. For if the woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Actually, I believe at this point I'll go ahead and read the other verses that were covered in the lesson text of our quarterly, intending to come back to them toward the end of, of the message. That takes us to, to uh, chapter 14, beginning at verse 33 through the end of the chapter. For God is not the author, author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. But if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for, for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things that I write unto you, let him acknowledge that the things that are right unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all men be let all things be done decently and in order. Now I'd like to go to some other scriptures, like I mentioned, that I believe help us understand some of the basic principles for this headship order and some of the models, some of the uh, some of the ways it impacts this reality. So I'd like to turn to Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> I'd like to read several verses here. Three verses in particular, or four verses, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and made himself in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So we have, we have the picture of Christ, who actually was second in command, or is second in command of all authority in the universe. It says he humbled himself. He became obedient. He submitted to the will of his father to come and become a man on earth, to be 
Actually, he humbled himself, but then he was even in a position to be humiliated as a man. And he was willing to do that for the higher calling of the purposes of God. And so I want us to think about the fact that he was an example of this humility. And he's calling us to actually uh, embrace that reality of how we are entering into the, the calling of God in, on our lives to demonstrate the virtues of God. You see, we ta- I've talked about recently about the subject of righteousness. That's the standard of God, God's virtue, the, the reality of, of the virtues of God. The righteous, and that's uh, right, the word righteousness encompasses all that. But one of the aspects of his righteousness that that is for us to understand is that he calls us to calls us to one of the highest virtues that Christ as God representing that righteousness demonstrated to us and that was his surrender his submission his willingness to humble himself and that and being that model as we see here in Philippians we have uh, more that we can look at in Scripture. We'll get that in a moment. Where he demonstrated that humility and that surrender and that willingness to, to be under the, the command of his Father. And it was, it was willing, but there were times when it was not easy. We remember when he was in the garden the night before he was, that he was crucified. He prayed and he agonized and he begged his Father to come up with another way another plan that the cup that he was planning to drink or the suffering he was planning to experience and endure, that maybe it could be lessened or maybe it could be detoured so that he didn't have to go through it because he saw it as, as a human being, as, as very distressing. And yet, through it all, his spirit and his attitude was, I surrender, I submit. I will, if that's your will, Father. And so, though he begged three times for God to change that, that requirement for our salvation, it was one of those things that was not negotiable. And so he surrendered to it. Not my will, but thine be done. And so he was our model of submission and surrender. And I would just like to say, that I find it interesting, and we'll get to this a little bit more later, but I find it so interesting, and and actually I have a lot of ad- admiration and respect for the sisters because of the calling that God has put upon them in this regard. You see, we are called to submit, to surrender, to die to self, allowing Christ to be our example. But for women... He's actually asked them to go a step further than the men in this that he's requiring them to wear a physical sign on their head that represents their action that is based on their faith and belief and and submission to this principle of submission. And there's a sense in which I believe that's a higher calling because it's, it's one of the most, one of the highest virtues that we find in Christ was his humility and submission. 
That was a tremendous virtue. Here was a man that was actually a God-man that had the right to have authority over everything, and yet he was willing to lay it down because of the request of his father. And then he's asked our sisters to demonstrate a daily reality to the world, to all those watching, that they are honoring that virtue in their life. You know, it's it's a daily demonstration of that reality. Um, every every day that we we pre- prepare to present ourselves to society, we have to make some choices. And every day, a believing woman, an obedient believing woman, obedient to these principles, chooses to put on that demonstration of humility, of surrender, of submission. Now, we men have the same responsibility to live that out, but it's not that we are called to demonstrate it so forcefully. And so in that sense, I say I believe the women have a higher calling, and I I believe that God has a special reward for those women who willingly put their veiling on with that that willingness to submit to the will of the Father in this order of headship that he's, he's ordained. And I want to talk a little bit more about that order a little bit more later. But to, to follow through a little bit more with this thought of, of this submission, the wives calling, I'd like to, to look at several of these verses in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 20 to 23. Now, you don't you won't see the wives' names uh, listed here, but this is the principle I'm looking at, and Christ's example. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even here unto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, we should follow any steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And so here's Jesus as the example of laying it down, uh, being willing to suffer. And actually, it's interesting because in this, in this uh, set of verses, he says, if you suffer for something that you deserve to suffer for, and you take it patiently, you might feel like, well, you're virtuous. But he says, no, that's normal. You better. You deserve it. You, you were out of step, and you needed, a, uh, you needed re- a retribution for your violation, and you, you get the... Uh, due reward of your actions what virtue is it in taking it patiently you should but he says if you don't deserve um, suffering for doing something wrong and you have to suffer for it anyway in other words if you're accused wrongly and you experience the suffering that goes with that accusation you're punished or whatever he says if you take that if you take that with the right attitude if you take it patiently and don't revile, don't 
stand up and demand your rights and so on. You, you're able to experience that suffering and, in, and, and internally you commit that to God. Then God is well pleased. That's acceptable with God. Now keep that in mind when we go to the next verses. Over in chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, it starts out with a word likewise. What's that referring to? It's hearkening back to Jesus, our example, who did that. He suffered and he didn't deserve it. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't his wrong, but he suffered for it. It says, likewise. Then it says, ye wives. It's talking to the women. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning or of plaiting the hair and wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection of their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Now this, this King James wording is a little, uh, maybe it doesn't flow so well with uh, the way we conceptualize some of these thoughts, but basically saying that, that even Sarah was able to submit to Abraham without, without fear of him being out of place. And I wonder, I'm not sure about this, but I wonder if this isn't a reference to her reaction to him telling her, uh, Sarah, I've got to take Isaac out on the mountain. God asked me to offer him for sacrifice. You know, we, we read that account and we don't see Sarah involved in that at all. But I can't help but believe as, as, as involved as this was, it was a, a three-day journey. It was, they had to take provisions. I don't think they sneaked off and went off without Sarah knowing it. I believe Sarah internalized the situation along with her husband. And it says she was able to submit without fear. In other words, she was able to commit it to God and trust him, even though it seemed so out of place and unjust and, and inappropriate. And so there's a sense in which sometimes women are called to this higher calling of submission and surrender to this high level. And, and, they have, and they're called on to do that to men that are fallible, men that are, are not perfect. Now, the example we have as a church is to submit and surrender to Jesus. And he was perfect. And so that should, that's probably a lot easier than surrendering to uh, submission to a man who has fallibility. I pity the sisters to, to uh, have this responsibility on them, so to speak. And that's one reason I believe that when they are able to accomplish this according to God's principles, they actually are rewarded with a higher reward than we realize. It's a high calling. But, men, you're not off the hook. There's another likewise in verse 7. It says, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, the wives, according, uh, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, 
and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. You know, we are responsible to love our wives. And scripture even says that, that we're to love them if they don't deserve it. And it also says that men are to, and of course that's following Christ's example, but men are to love their wives even if they don't submit and give them honor. And they're fallible and they're not always able to do it perfectly. And we as men are called to likewise as Christ was willing to suffer and take things that were not due him, he was able to still maintain that perfect love and not retaliate, not say things harshly, not not go out of, get, uh, go out of the zone of his virtuous righteousness. And we're called to that as husbands, to be able to have the patience to uh, allow for the, the, the times when wives aren't able to quite get it right. We're to exercise the love of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 8, is another likewise, in a sense, it's the word finally. It says, finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love us, brethren, be pitiful. Do you see what it takes to make this work? It takes love. It takes pity. It takes compassion. It takes committing ourselves to God, our faithful creator, who understands this. He's called us to it, and he's also provided the, the, op, the, uh, the reality of his available grace to do it graciously, his way with his spirit at work operating in us to bring it about. We are not able to fulfill these requirements, these principles of Christ's likeness without the power of Christ's resurrection in our life. And you see, I've said many times before, there can be no resurrection if there's no death. And for us to be able to fully submit and surrender and to come under this responsibility is that we die to self. Then we can be raised to, to true life in Christ and exercise his virtue the way he wants it done in our life. And so I'm, I brought those verses in about suffering and about coming under submission to Jesus as, as our head, as Lord, and, and noticing that it's not easy, that the requirements are high. And yet, it's something that goes beyond the human ability. But that's what is expected of those of us who claim to, to believe in the resurrection. I believe that to believe in the resurrection and truly believe in the resurrection, we need to be able to experience that resurrection power daily. And if we're not, it's like it was mentioned in Sunday school, we're kind of like the Sadducees. We become kind of sad, you see. We we don't really believe in the power of the resurrection. We take it ourselves to grumble and complain and, and, and chafe under this, this system that doesn't seem to be just and, and fair, equal at times. But when we commit it to God and we respect and honor him in it, then he brings the joy of serving him. He gives reward for the injustices that we've experienced just as he rewarded his son for faithfulness and giving him the joy in resurrection. I believe we can have joy, true joy, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives when we truly submit and joyfully commit ourselves to the God who has called us to these callings.
Now I'd like to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and notice a, a couple things. I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on the particulars, but I'd like, like to point out a couple things that help us understand these are actually illustrations and that, <coughs> excuse me, I believe God, God instituted the illustration of a physical response to a command by the women to wear their uh, availing on their hair, on their heads. <clears throat> it's interesting as you study scripture in the Old Testament, you notice that God often, many ways, used physical things to illustrate spiritual realities. We, had, we have a, a number of things in the types of the Old Testament that pointed to true spiritual realities of the New Testament. They were physical things to help us uh, conceptualize the truth if we give ourselves to understand it. If we, if we commit ourselves to obedience to it, then we begin to receive the, the understanding sometimes. Sometimes we don't understand it until we do it, and then we're blessed for it, and we begin to to have our eyes opened and we make we begin to understand the realities of it. And so <clears throat> I'd like to look at especially verse 6 of chap, first chapter of Corinthians um, chapter 6 verse I'm sorry, chapter 11 verse 6. We're going to think a little bit about the veiling and the covering and, and some of the things that it speaks to. <clears throat> but I want us to remember that this is kind of a focus on this part of it, partly because it comes under question in our day. There's a lot of practicing Christians that say it's, it's to be understood differently than we understand it. But I want us to get, be able to have the principles in our mind as to why it's still important for us today. But also, I want us to also remember, I've already uh, alluded to this a number of times, but there's a larger picture that is actually being demonstrated and illustrated by this. Let's not lose sight of that. And so we need to understand this is not the chapter on the veiling. This is the chapter on headship order. But the, chap but the veiling is an illustration. <clears throat> In verse 6, it says, For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for the woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Now, <clears throat> this, this word covered in the Greek has the idea, and, and I don't want to uh, attempt to pronounce the Greek word because I'm not real good at it. I can demolish it. Uh, just take my word for it that it's there and that I've looked it up and, and ref I'm referencing it. But the, in the original language, that word has the idea of to cover wholly, to completely cover. And someone asked me, actually last Sunday after the message, why don't we require our women to, to completely follow this understanding of what it's saying? It's talking about covering the head, not the hair. And it talks about completely covering it. Well, I told him, I said, I, I believe that, that years past that it was more properly um, practiced 
the, the veilings came a lot further up on the head. And yet, I don't. I, I get the feeling that that they understood that it's somewhat the spirit of the of the idea, rather than that it's it's something that is a legalistic kind of thing. If a little bit of hair was showing, they were not. They didn't negate the principle that they were attempting. And so, a little hair would show, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and and we have uh, we don't have the head covered as much as it used to be. And then we have. I've heard it said, I've heard it preached actually, that the covering is to cover the hair. And so since we believe that the hair should all be there and it's put up, that we cover that and then we've we've covered the glory because it's the long hair that's the glory and we cover that. And and I can I can kind of buy into that idea. Um and and yet the the Bible talks about covering the head, not the hair. Um, in a sense. It does mention covering it. And so I don't want to really get into that, but I, here's what I told him, that I believe that the reason I don't make it, uh, and we haven't made it a legalistic thing that this is where it has to be, is because it is more of, of the spirit of the thing. And I do believe that we ought to encourage it to cover as much as is practical rather than allowing it to be like we've seen a lot in our day where the covering diminishes and diminishes until it's a sign of a sign. You see, the covering of the hair is the sign of submission. It's not that the covering itself is the sign of covering the head, uh, if you understand what I'm saying. And I've seen some very poor excuses of sign, actually, uh, just little little things that that you don't even know are there. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, this this person does understand some responsibility to 1 Corinthians 11. There's a little piece of material on, on that tuck back there or whatever. <clears throat> well, I'd like to look at, at what this verse says a little closer. It says, and this is where a lot of people um, take, take liberty to not fulfill this command and this principle. It says, for if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is a shame, but if it is a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. It's kind of like they they take it that if it's a cultural norm that women are covered, then it would be a shame. Then she should cover her hair. I think of it. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that it doesn't mean if, as in maybe. It, the word if is used like we use it in other situations where we say since you're going to church. I could say if you're going to church, take your coat. Uh, it could also say since you're going to church, take your coat. Now that's, that's not a good example, but we use that word interchangeably and <clears throat> I'm convinced that this word if would mean since. It's just an understood reality that if the woman be not covered, it's the same as if she cut off her hair. And and didn't have hair, or else uh, cut the hair. We have two words here. We have shorn or shaven. We would believe that the word shorn is like shears. It's shook. It's cut. It's separated. Uh, shaven. We know what that means. It's completely taken off. And I believe that there was a time that, and, and even in Paul's day, where women uh, it was it was a shame for a woman to be seen without a covering. 
and it was really a shame for her hair to have been cut and and uh, or shaven especially. And so he's saying, since that's since that's a sh- uh, a shame, then she should be covered. And that word covered has the idea of of this whole covering. Now I want to drop down to verse uh, fifteen of First Corinthians. Because this touches on this again. He says, But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now in the Greek, this is a different Greek word. It has a a different meaning of covering. And I I brought an illustration along to just help try to help uh, explain this. But that word in the Greek actually has more of the idea of to be wrapped around or put up. And that, in that sense, the hair is a natural covering that because it's long, it needs to be put up. It, it, uh, there's another word that, that is translated from the same word. In uh, Peter's writings, it said, talks about the vesture, which we folded up, has the idea of wrapping or folding or whatever. <clears throat> and so we understand that to mean that the uncut hair should should actually cover the head. And so with with the hair on the head, it's covered. But then if you're going to put the covering on that's mentioned in verse 6, that needs to be covered. And so this covering is referring to the one that covers holy. This one refers to the one that's kind of wrapped around, if that makes sense. So this would this would demonstrate the hair, and this would demonstrate the covering. Now you wouldn't; uh, it would it would be uh, in other, and, and then those that say, and then there are those who say it says the long hair is the covering, and it says, but if you shave or shave the head or if you take off the covering then you shave the head there's nothing left to cut or shave if if there's only one covering and so that's a a feeble attempt to explain that wording I do think it helps us a little bit to realize that there are two different um, there are two different realities in focus the one is to be respected as God's given natural reality of what's appropriate for a woman to be covered. It talks about that it's a glory to women to have that long hair. It sets them apart. It distinguishes them in their proper um, in their proper um, order of womanhood. And it talks about the men should be cutting their hair and keeping it cut as a way of distinction from, from being a uh, part of, of the women. Um, of being different from the women. <clears throat> now, there's another verse here that I kind of skipped over. I want to I want to notice, and it's for this cause, verse ten. For this cause, ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Uh, the, the cordly commentary said we maybe shouldn't go there uh, so much because that's really not established what it means. But I, 
I just couldn't quite leave that there. Uh, I did a little more searching, and I noticed that we we need to acknowledge the reality of the spirit realm. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who are the heirs of salvation? In other words, there are angels out there that are, are, are sent to uh, protect us and to help aid in our, in our, in our sport, spiritual warfare. Uh, in the Psalms, it says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. And so what significance is what significance is it then that a woman would have her head veiled would would speak to the, the uh, ministering spirits, the uh, spirit world, the angels that are sent to minister? Well, you know, I don't believe angels can read our minds or even know for sure about our hearts. Now, I do believe that that angels observe our actions and can discern our hearts. And so a woman who deliberately does not obey God with putting the, the I'm going to say, the, the unnatural covering on top of the natural covering, the angel hasn't got the signal that they're obedient to the commands of Christ. And so it's, it's, it actually doesn't give them that, that firm signal that that person is really in obedience to, the, to, to receive the benefits of God's protection, spiritual protection. Now, on the other hand, a woman can wear a veiling and it doesn't guarantee that spiritual protection if her heart's not right. Because if there are signs in her life that she's being, that, that it's not out of true obedience, and that she's not practicing Christianity, it's going to show in her actions, in her life. And they'll have that cue to understand how to, how to relate to that individual. And I believe that, that there is something to the fact that the angels uh, recognize the obedience and the surrender and the submission of women and give them aid and, and help in that. Well, I wanted to refer a little bit more to uh, the last part of this order in the church. We read it. I'm, I'm going to just make a couple comments about it. It mentions about women uh, keeping silence in the church. And I believe, and, and we as a church have, have pretty much interpreted this to mean that not that women can't sing or give their testimony, but it's not up to women to in church to prophesy, to preach, to teach men, to uh, exhort authority over men. And so we have, have interpreted that to mean that that speaking is speaking in terms with authority. Um, there are those who have taken it pretty literally, and I won't argue with them, but I believe that this idea of things being done decently and order in verse 40 have that idea of women taking their proper place and not being an authoritative voice. If they have a, a question to ask that challenges the authority of the church, they ask that at home. They don't ask that in church. Now, there's a verse here in, in verse 37 that I find very interesting, and I, I think it's important to keep in mind that also it kind of reiterates something I said earlier in verse 37, it says, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. And so he kind of takes away the excuse that this 
is something that was custom for the time of the Corinthians. But he's talking about now, uh, all through all time, these principles apply. There's one more thing that could be controversial I just want to touch on a little bit. And that is this, that in verse 39, it talks about covet to prophesy or edify, to teach others, uh, uh, desire to be able to have the Spirit teach you so you can teach others. And it says then, and forbid not the to speak with tongues. And that one has been somewhat controversial. We've kind of downplayed that as a church, or we really downplayed that. I've heard it explained that the tongues were something that was a sign to confirm the reality of the power of God and, and the gospel and that in their time. And, and I believe that. But there's an aspect of this that I think maybe we're missing. And that is this, that I think speaking in tongues has the idea of communicating with God in nonverbal ways. And, and I'm, on, I'm not even going to say that if somebody finds themselves uttering things that don't fit the English pronunciations and so on in an earnest prayer to God, uh, I wouldn't say that they're a heretic. But I think the focus here is that we have that intimate worship relationship with God where we trust him and we give him our, our hearts, we, we, uh, we, we, the spirit, the scripture says, I believe in Romans chapter eight, toward the end there, it says that the spirit uh, is involved in our prayers and, and takes things to God that we can't even utter. We don't even understand how to say. And I believe when we're in that spirit of, of seeking God, desiring God, there is that, that mode of giving ourselves to God realizing and recognizing and even committing ourselves to him acknowledging to him that we don't know how to say it but God you know and we need you to answer and I, I feel like we need to be a conscious of of that that reality that should be happening in our lives we should be desiring deeper deeper things with God and and there may and there can be those situations where our spirit reaches out to God and 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 we don't have words to explain our feelings, but we trust that God hears our hearts. And I'm not here to say that that doesn't mean that, that those who have utterances to go with that, that they're totally wrong or out of place. We have been careful not to get carried away with that. And I think one of the things that has happened, there have been those, those movements in the past that were charismatic, and they looked at these things as they have to happen or you're not a Christian. And we don't see that as a command here. But it's that you don't stand in the way of that and that you should cultivate the desire to, to have that inner communication with God. And we maybe have reacted to that in that tongues are completely out because they were so inappropriately considered. And there are groups today that we feel like put too much emphasis on that as a, as a reality of, of being right with God. And, and we see them practicing that and, and feeling like that gives them... Uh, authenticity in their in their relationship with God when they're totally disobedient in other ways. And, and so we, we react to that somewhat. And we want to be careful. But I wonder sometimes we, we fail to realize what it is at the bottom of it and what we maybe aren't fleshing out in our spirit like we should or could.
I've shared with you what I believe is God's word this morning. I believe there's a lot I could have said that didn't get said. Better ways to say some things. But I want to give you this verse in closing. Proverbs 4, 20, 21. Actually, I want to read several verses beyond it. My son and my daughter, I'll insert that, it's for both. Attend to my words, incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Let's keep our heart yearning for God. The willingness and desire to be surrendered, submissive, obedient to his call upon our life. So that he can be glorified and he can, he can honor himself through what happens in the reality of our life experience. Let's stand for closing prayer. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find there. We thank you for the, for the eternal principles that you have brought to our attention to help us understand how to function in a spiritual way, in a spiritual reality that, is, uh, that can bring your blessing and, and your benefit to our lives. We thank you, Father, that you help us to understand we thank you that you help us to be obedient. We thank you that your spirit brings to us understanding and truth uh, of the truth. And we just pray you will help us to be open and earnest in our desire to serve you and please you and, and surrender to your principles in a way that we bless each other as we honor you. We commit ourselves to you and ask that you would add your blessing to our lives as we go forth to serve you another week. Keep us from sin. Keep us from the temptations that are vehement. We pray that you would protect us from the powers of evil that would, uh, that would desire to take advantage of us. We pray that we commit ourselves to you and pray that you will protect us and guide us and direct us for your glory. We pray and thank you in Jesus' worthy name.